0: Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic
1: that makes you look or feel good with long-form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation.
0: Good evening, Gillian. How are you today?
2: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
0: (laughs) We are very well. That was very robotic, (laughs) Jakey. All right,
2: let's do it again. (laughs) No,
1: no, 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 no. This is all part of the show. You can't cut this out.
0: Well the problem was that you ended the meeting Gillian, and kicked her out so i had to sort of find a nice natural spot to bring her back in because
2: you does not like my tea bag yeah.
0: <laughs> so sorry listeners that was very robotic i'll do it again hello Gillian. how are you
2: Oh hi, Jake. I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Jake and David? (laughs) We
0: are really, really good. Um, I want to acknowledge how I got in touch with you, first of all. So I know that you're sort of Instagram friends. It's all weird. We're Instagram friends with everyone, but you talked to Michelle Dodd, who's a nurse injector at one of my clinics. In fact, she's joining my other clinic uh, tomorrow as well. And uh, she, you know, I was just talking about the podcast, and I said, you know, thinking about different topics, and we want to do one on highlights and so on. She said. I know exactly who you need to speak to. She said check out Gillian Murray's uh, Instagram. So I did and it's fantastic. Uh, you've done oh, a really good you. job. Uh, I love the way that you sort of just jump into a topic and you know you're happy to do a live and you just sort of talk on your own and it's really really good. It's it's <laughs> it's nice and educational. So if anyone hasn't heard of Gillian you must follow her. I'm getting you lots of followers here. Yeah. What's your Instagram <laughs> handle is it just Gillian Murray or is it something No, no
2: it's gm/aesthetics.education.
1: Ah. N- n- nice and easy a
2: short one nice, a nice, short yeah. one. nice.
0: <laughs> just slips off the tongue <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got R- RSI in my thumb just typing that into <laughs> <laughs> um but you know joking aside um I was just telling David before a little bit about your background but why don't you introduce yourself to to the listeners because I think it's interesting there will be some eyebrows raised at um some of the things that you do compared to other countries but l- l- let's get into that
2: yeah, so I think the, what you're alluding to is the fact that I'm a pharmacist. Yes, and I inject I inject in the UK. Although um, now I do that on a part time basis, and a lot of work with the university as well. And I do a lot of work around complications. Mm-hmm. So um, my sort of background in pharmacy, and I've never worked in what people would sort of always sort of peg pharmacist is doing i've never worked in a shop or anything i went on a clinical pharmacy pathway so in the uk pharmacists that go via that route go into hospital and embark on a clinical training pathway and that involves having a lot of training around disease disease states diagnostics as well as the medical management of that Mm -hmm. as it pertains to drugs so not only do we have to understand disease but we have to understand the complex kinetics that that are around the drugs that we use. So I embarked on that um, sort of postgraduate clinical pathway and then went into advanced practice. And I am a prescriber. I can prescribe pretty much anything. So it's sort of aligned slightly with the advanced nurse practitioner kind of trajectory. Yeah. So you work within a scope. But the difference being that we have lots of general medical kind of pathophysiology knowledge, a lot of complex drug knowledge so so we are kind of similar but different so obviously i worked as an advanced practitioner and then went into aesthetics so the the whole reason why we do this as pharmacists is because the nhs has sort of driven this pathway Mm -hmm. you know lack of doctors trying to sort of gap fill positions and develop our allied health professionals so in the uk we can do that as pharmacists so i think that seems very strange if you're with the uk and it also seems strange to people in the uk who have maybe been in private aesthetics for like 10 plus years because they're not used to this yeah so um it is a bit controversial and even in the uk with some of the old school kind of injectors they're sort of scratching their head thinking what is this kind of about but it's just by virtue of the fact that our pathways now mean that we're practicing as advanced practitioners
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's a a great example of, you know, we've discussed this many times with David and uh, many, many guests about, you know, what does competence mean and and who should inject and blah, blah, blah. And I think we've showcased many, many different types of injectors, including nurses, nurse practitioners, plastic surgeons, doctors, dentists, and now we've got our first pharmacist. Mm -hmm. And I think we can quite clearly say it's not necessarily your title that is the important thing it's your passion Mm -hmm. dedication and you know at the end of the day skill and knowledge um and knowing when you're out of your depth and knowing what to do when bad things happened and Mm -hmm. and you're a great example of that because you fly the flag for you know CMAC, which is the UK
2: complications
0: group so how did you get involved with them
2: so um I'm not very good at cutting a long story short you will realize (laughs) but around so when I came into aesthetics, I realised there was a kind of gap around people's knowledge about disease conditions and whether that increased risk of complications. It was always, can I inject this patient who has um, rheumatoid arthritis, etc., who has had chemotherapy two months ago? A lot of lack of understanding around drugs. So I set up a, a forum called Medicines and Aesthetics,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that quite quickly grew in number. Um, it's a space. It's a it's a tight knit kind of group. It's closed, and there's around three and a half thousand people on that now, all medical injectors, wow. predominantly in the UK. So I was contacted by a nurse called Emma Davies, who basically set up the BACN, which is the British Association of Cosmetic Nurses, and also the ACE group. Yes, I don't know if you're familiar with. So at that at that time, Lee Walker, Emma, etc., they were part of the ACE group, and they asked me if I would come on board and. At that point, I thought this is strange complications. What do I well, complications was something that I was still very quite fearful of. But I think with my the background in the medicines and the conditions and things, we felt that would, would lend itself well. So I joined ACE and then I did sort of a tenure there for, for a year or two. And then we wanted to build something that was more focused around education and reflection from complications. We wanted to be more collaborative and learn from counterparts in other countries so myself Emma Cormack and Lee formed CMAC, which is it's slightly different to ACE so we started sort of running CMAC, and we have had lots of interest from people in other countries we've grown our board to span you know many many countries so I sort of fell into it I think through I think demonstration of knowledge around medicines and complications in that respect
1: so I guess, you know, that sort of leads nicely into, you know, the topic of today, um, mm. which is really about Hyalase, which is, yeah. well, in the last few years has become a very, very well-known product, especially in the, mm. the world of cosmetic injectables, because, you know, 15 years ago, we were injecting with absolute um, zero fear factor. We didn't have any mm-hmm. understanding of, you know, that things like vascular occlusions occurring and blindness and stroke and all these sorts of other horrible things that we've discovered can potentially happen. So mm-hmm. maybe let's just start off by you know, you give us a, a basic description of what hyalase is. And we all know the name. And I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this have a, a reasonable idea. But I guess from like, you know, at a detailed level, talking about chemically, structurally,
0: what is it? How is it made? And then we can talk about, you know, how you destroy it. Can I tweak your question yes. slightly? Sure. Hyaluronidase, not hyalase, because hyalase is a brand and there's several. Oh, there you go. And also, actually, why don't we talk about hyalonic acid first? Because that's the thing that we're attacking yeah. with the Hyaluronidase And, you know, I know that injectors have heard about rheology and structure a thousand times and every company will tell it slightly differently. But how, how do you understand it from a you know from from your perspective, Gillian?
2: So I'll try and just explain it basically because I think that there's always an overcomplication of this. Yeah. And I think that's not helpful to the on the ground injector. Um, so in terms of hyaluronic acids, I mean it's so ubiquitous, it's it's, it's an extracellular matrix. Product—it's a uh, you know a sugar that's everywhere. It's in our joints. It's in our skin. It's in our organs. It's, it's everywhere, and um, it's people have heard of the maybe term like monosaccharide, disaccharide, polysaccharide. So sugars—you mm-hmm. have one basic subunit. If you join those two together, you get a disaccharide. If you join all of them together, you get a polysaccharide. So effectively, what hyaluronic acid is is two types of monosaccharide sugars stuck together. And then the two stuck together equals a disaccharide, and then re- then it just repeats. Yeah. And then it forms a chain, which is called a polysaccharide, and it's sticky, and it absorbs a lot of water, so it's called a mucopolysaccharide, mm-hmm. and that basically, you know, is, is what it is. So in the body, it's just long strands of this like chain of, sort of polysaccharide sugar that's absorbing water, basically. Yeah. And those disaccharide subunits. There's a particular bond that, that sticks them together, which is the beta-1,4 glycosidic bond. So that's effectively where the these enzyme targets. So it's bringing water in and catalyzing the breakdown of those bonds back into those disaccharide subunits. So that, that's the hyaluronic acid that we have in the body, and that's basically how it's structured. And then that's where the enzyme targets. But with dermal fillers... What they do is they just use bacteria to create a bunch of this uncross-linked hyaluronic acid, the the, the big strands of it, and then they purify it all. So they have to take away the bacteria, the toxins that the bacteria produce, and any other sort of um, residue. So they filter that all out. And then they just put it in a big bucket with a cross-linking agent that that is like, it's almost like if you've got two hands and you're grabbing two strands of the hyaluronic acid at certain points, and it's then sort of pulling the strands together more like tighter, and it, then you get some sort of bending and twisting and, and sort of natural entanglement of it. And mm-hmm. then you can either chop it up randomly or put it through a sieve to make sort of little pockets of the same size. Yeah. Um, and then with the crosslinker, because you're tightly packing the strands together. The enzyme can't physically find its target because you're shielding them. You're, you're pulling the strands together. So therefore, you're making it resistant to breakdown because you're making it more difficult for the enzyme to find those sort of active sites where you, know, where you get these, these bonds linking the, the diaccharides together. Does so that
0: kind of answer the question. Yeah, I think that's good. Yes. <laughs> Sorry about the Sons of Anarchy driving past. I don't yeah. know if you can hear hundreds of motorbikes. <laughs> yes. Driving. You well, seem had, to get
1: that quite a lot. Well, yeah? it had, it's been raining here. If I don't know if you've seen, um, Jimmy. We've done. Yeah. The, we've had. Uh, we've done. Our, we've well. We've put the UK to shame. I think in in rainfall, it's been nuts in the last three weeks. So no one's been yeah. out out to ride their motorbike, and today has been the first day. Of uh, sunshine, so we may be we may be uh, graced <laughs> with a few
0: more that come past during this chat. David actually lives in quite a posh part of Sydney, so it's kind of weird. that yeah. <laughs> you get all the bikies here. But <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, okay. So that's Horalonic acid. So I, I liken it when I'm you know teaching baby injectors just to strands of spaghetti, and you got long yeah. ones and and shorter ones, and then they're bound together by. I know it's a stupid analogy. I, I say tomato sauce, but it's the bonds that you know that you were talking about. So those mm-hmm. big pieces of spaghetti are stuck together. And mm-hmm. ha, what is what is the substance B D D E? We we hear of that a lot, and many or most of the common brands use that to to sort of artificially cross-link um, the strands of spaghetti together. So what is that?
2: So in terms of the structure, I couldn't tell you offhand exactly structurally what it is, but it's a hydrocarbon, basically. It's, yeah. a, it's a hydrocarbon, which is a carbon backbone, and there's re- there'll be reactive kind of units, so oxygen species at each side, which will which will link to sections of the hyaluronic acid, which are also um, either positive or negative. So it's just basically like a polar hydrocarbon that will link on and form covalent bonds, basically.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: that's That's effectively what it is.
0: And is there any, how do I put this? risk of toxicity because i know that there are guidelines of how much you know is safe and so on but you know from your perspective have you ever looked into that
2: not not specifically but i know that for example when you want when you get an fda license they look for certain amounts of toxin residues certain amounts of residual bdde but it's used a lot in chemistry and food chemistry and um, pharmaceuticals. So it's something that is used very frequently. And yeah. whenever you look at it from a, a sort of pharmaceutical science perspective, it seems to have low toxicity and that's why it's used. Yeah. But, you know, whether specifically it's at play whenever we have problems down the line, I think there's an, a lot of other factors that would affect that. I think we can never say discriminately that it's absolutely the BDD's fault because it is used a lot. And it yeah. is sort of deemed to be safe.
0: Yeah. I only mention it because, you know, we say to patients kind of flippantly, ah, this is a natural product. It's found in our own skin and it's loosely true, but not not fully true.
2: It, yeah. and it, it, I mean, it isn't really because the body doesn't just let it just sit there. <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: You know, we
2: know that there's a, we know that the macrophages kind of sniff about and that starts to sort of wall it off. We know that the body isn't 100% happy with it. So... I mean, I think natural is a loose term.
3: Mm. Yeah,
1: right. And in what, in what sort of circumstances would we actually want to dissolve HA? Um, can you just sort of run us through like why we'd need to do that?
2: So I think we're obviously using more and more of it now. And in the UK, it's used by the bucket load. In fact, our manufacturer can't even keep up with it. And then that's causing a problem with, Mesotherapy, how is being used, which is something we can talk about if you want to after mm-hmm. this point. But you know, we essentially use it for complications. So we use it for vascular occlusion. We use it to try and get rid of pockets of filler that are causing problems with delayed onset reactions. Mm. Whether it's nodules, whether it's diffuse inflammation, whether it's you know after an abscess it's formed. We're using it a lot now for inverted commas poor aesthetic outcome. And that's probably has a two-pronged um, thing to it. Either the patient has been overfilled, the treatment hasn't been correct, or sometimes it's just that over time, adding filler and then the distribution of that filler has meant that it's gone to the surface or it's changed position, it's changed plane. So sometimes after time, it just doesn't look like a good aesthetic outcome anymore. But the treatment might have actually been okay. So that's probably how i would cover how you would use it
3: mm-hmm, fair you can enough.
2: also use it for other things like hematomas so br- bruising so the thing about people often can misdiagnose an occlusion and they have quite significant bruising they then use halionidase and it goes and they think well it must have been an occlusion but it actually when it breaks down the ha causes dispersal of the, the blood components and we can also use it for edema as well so it's quite good for shifting persistent edema but then Depending on the cause of that edema, that edema might just come back.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I found out from my partner that it's used in operating theatres for um, helping uh, local anaesthetic um, bind somehow yeah. how- how in the body. So you know, it wasn't originally used for aesthetic nope. purposes. So I mean, what what is the history of it? I mean, is that is that where it started, or was there, there other things that it was used for as well?
2: Yeah. So it's actually. The first documented sort of use of it, I mean, it dates back to 1949. So this has been around for a long time and scientists have known about it for, you know, a couple of hundreds of years. It's just they couldn't distill it out and, and isolate it. It's although the license now, I mean, if we look at our what we call our summary product characteristics from the manufacturer here, you can use it for spreading subdermal fluid for hydration, you can use it for extravasation injury. So if you have a cytotoxic drug and cannula tissues, you can use it to try and disperse it. And it also increases the permeability of the vessel. So you can uptake that drug and into the circulation, get it away from causing tissue damage. And it also has a role, I think, with um, some sort of radiological dyes as well. But over time, you know, from, from the history of it, people have used it intravenously, myocardial infarction, They've used it in pain control, so with epidurals. They've used it to disperse um, drugs and anesthetic agents into the into the back of the eye through retrobulbar, peribulbar, subtenins injections. They've also used, the, I mean, there's there's some hyaluronic acid implants that they've put inside the eye and they've used it to dissolve that. Mm. Um it's used, in, it's been used in oncology in the past to help disperse these sort of chemotherapeutic drugs. Um, it's been used in skin flap surgery. So, I think there's been a lot of specialities that have babbled in using the drug because what it does is, is it, it if, if you can imagine, if you're in a swimming pool, we full of water, trying to run through the swimming pool would be difficult. But if you remove the water, you can move quickly. So it's it's because it's it's so good at dispersing the drug, and it's like uh, drugs acts as it helps the vehicle disperse other drugs, and it also can promote. Uptake into the the blood vessels by increasing permeability, but it doesn't drop blood pressure. So usually, when you increase the permeability of vessels, the blood pressure drops. So I think people have dabbled with it, you know, you know, o- over the years. But its use, I think, before aesthetics came along, the biggest use was probably in ophthalmology mm. with these retrobulbar, retinobulbar injections. Actually, that was where it all came from.
0: So I think what mm-hmm. we're saying is there are some on-label uses and in aesthetics we're definitely using it off-label and I think that's important because you know we we sort of routinely tell people in our consent or I certainly do that you know if if things go bad we can use this filler dissolver and blah 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 but I think you should just also say and this is actually an off-label use of this drug um, because
2: I think that is particularly important because when something is on-label and the manufacturer deems it on-label they've received safety data about the dosing of it the route that you're using the concentration that you're using so there is a lot of safety data around this if we look at what we do in aesthetics there's such a, a wide variation of what people are doing yeah the concentrations are using the units that they're using and effectively we're using it to remove a dermal filler and the dermal filler in itself there may be problems around that dermal filler there may be um knock-on effects of having the dermal filler in situ so you're not just administering the drug you're taking away a gel as well so whenever we use it it's it's it is in a nutshell slightly experimental in a way because we we don't have the the huge amount of safety data for other indications
0: yeah and it's interesting what you said um i think you said it increases um blood vessel permeability and Presumably, you're saying that the hyaluronidase can actually get into the blood vessel. Whereas we know that in aesthetics, the biggest problem is trying to get, you know, uh, hyaluronidase into a blood vessel. And that's why we're going down the ultrasound path and so on. So I don't know. I don't know if we know enough yet i mean i oh, remember yeah. a, a paper i can't remember who it, you, you'll probably know better than me but they had two bunny ears and they deliberately um occluded one of the bunny ears with filler and and you know the other one was a control and and they were trying to get her on days across the the blood vessels to save the bunnies here and it and it didn't work as far as i remember i can't yeah i
2: can't i haven't read that case for a while the one that i read most recently was delarenzi paper
0: All right yeah
2: um, where he looked at it was segments of the circle of Willis that he submerged in um, howieronides ex vivo. But, but the problem is, and this is the thing with aesthetics, is when you look paper to paper, there'll be one paper that says it does and one paper that says it doesn't. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's true. So the, the thing is, the methodologies, you know, you know, of the, all these papers are different. You yeah. can't compare them. Uh, everything is, you know, you've got animal models, you've got models cooled down ex vivo in petri dishes nothing this doesn't mimic real life so i think when i read these papers i always i think it's obviously really good to have research and it's also good to develop on research but i think you have to take them slightly with a pinch of salt Mm. and consider what what we see in practice as well and you know when we have an occlusion if you use hyaluronidase it does resolve the problem and then there's another factor with that where people are now, especially when they're using ultrasound, sometimes when you're visualising it, it doesn't actually look like it's inside the vessel as such. So maybe sometimes it is, maybe sometimes it isn't. We don't really fully understand the element of spasm. Mm. So, you know, I think we can say that it definitely does work. Um, but the, the amount we're having to use sometimes and the repeated dosing, it certainly doesn't just really flow. Across the vessel, yeah. So I don't think things are just as straightforward as what we see in the literature, and certainly, you know, it doesn't doesn't correlate to practice.
0: Right. I remember uh, when we had Patrick Patrick Tracy on. Yes. He, I, I'm not knocking him. Maybe maybe we will never know, but he claimed to be the first person to use hyalase in an aesthetic emergency, and that must have been. I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't want to misquote him. I think it was like the late 90s or early 2000s, and. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're just playing around with this stuff, and, and and he just had knowledge of it because of his sort of, um, you know, done lots of different jobs and plastics and dermatology, and presumably he'd used hyalase in in some of those on label ways. So he just sort of had had a go, and it and it seemed to work. Yeah, uh, and that's one of the reasons why Michael Jackson sought him out uh, for his work because he needed hyalase for for some work that wasn't so great, and and no one else in the world apparently knew how to use it. They so. were using HA filler back in the nineties. Uh, well, 96. Yeah. That's when Restylane was launched. Wow. He must've been one of the gu- early Guinea pigs. Yeah. Who
1: knows? Gosh.
3: <laughs> Crazy. Go, goes, back, goes back
1: long, <laughs> goes back a long way. Um, so I incorrectly um, quoted the drug as Hylays and that's the, the, the product. So we'll get to, we'll get to the question about different brands because I know that there's different products around around yeah. the world like you know, like in, in the USA. Is there any difference sort of between these these different brands? Are they all, you know, pretty much the same thing with a different label on the box?
2: No, no. They're different. So I'll talk about huh? that in a second. But just going back to Jake, your point about the use of how how your own days and how it all came about in aesthetics, I mean When I did it, I did a literature search for one of the papers that um, I was putting together. And in terms of documented use, I could only find something as far back as 2004 with Val Lambros. That was as far back as my trail took me in Mm -hmm. terms of physical documentation. And then prior to that, around sort of 1997, 1998, they were injecting a... Well, it was outside of aesthetics, but it was called, I think it was Helon or something, but it was an HA some sort of substance that we're putting into the eye and then using how you to dissolve that he yes so maybe i mean who, who can say? but in terms of documentation <clears throat> it was i mean as far as i could go back was 2004 to Lambros. so who, who, who knows well who knows?
0: when we had per winloff on from galderma who's their chief design expert he, he very specifically said they chose hyaluronic acid as their filler material because they knew there was an antidote, even though it was off-label and they didn't sort of, you know, I guess formalize it in any way they knew that they they had a, a sort of a get out of jail card so yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually that product that you mentioned in the eye the company that preceded Galderma derma were the company that made that stuff for the oh, eye the qmed? yes yeah ah,
2: everything's and everything's interlinked yeah. well i think it,
0: it may Cost-linked. even be there the company go. prior to qmed before qmed formed i can't remember mm. uh, you're testing our knowledge on podcasts a few a few back i think back it was now. still qmed i'm pretty sure it was yeah i think but, so um yeah, it, it, I love the That's history of all this stuff. Yeah, so it maybe makes sense. maybe you can hit hit up uh, Patrick Tracy and uh, Per Winloff and you'll get your answer.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: Sorry, you're okay, saying about so highlands talk- and um, Yes, yes.
2: For, formulations. Um, so no, they're they're not the same. And as I said, it started to be used in about you know n- 1949 was when they could extract it, and they were they were extracting it from it was. It was basically animal testes they were extracting it from. And the extraction process wasn't brilliant at the start. So what you had was these um compounded haluronidases, which actually still exists in some countries, and it's a very crude extraction process. So if the haluronidase is a compounding product, there are lots of protein, um random proteins that are in it impurities. Yeah. So it can be irritant, it can be allergenic, and that is what I would probably term like a lower grade product. Then you get up to what we have. Um, so we have, it used to be Hylase by Walkart, but they've just changed the days, but effectively it is still Hylase. And I think actually we we possibly might supply Australia because when I spoke to the company, you definitely they do. said that they export a lot. So, yeah, so I think it's the same product. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably, I think it's maybe Ovine. So there are, Um, countries that have bovine-derived pharmaceutical grade. So that's hauronidase that has a a product license from whether it's the MHRA here, the EMEA in Europe, or whatever your equivalent would be. So that's pharmaceutical grade and it's more pure, but it's not completely pure. Hmm. Um, And also bearing in mind that it's animal Haluronidase, so it's what we call an ortholog. So they are all species have different, slightly different hyaluronidases, so it's not exactly the same as one of the ones that we have. So that in itself, you know, it's a, it's a slightly foreign protein. And then if we look at Hylinex, X is made from taking effectively the code for one of our hyaluronidase enzymes and putting it into a, a circular ring of DNA and putting it into um, Chinese hamster ovary for them to pump out. A, a fraction of enzyme which is the same as the one of the ones that we have so that is then effectively the same enzyme so it should be very it shouldn't really have an allergy potential but of course whether or not the product itself is fully pure um, i'm not i mean i don't know that information so compounded in terms of purities down here then the pharmaceutical bovine or ovine is here and then Hylin-X would be here in terms of in terms of purity.
0: How many people in America who have had HyLin X do you reckon know that? That it's basically recombinant DNA sort of technology. And yet they probably would say, No, I don't want a vaccine because of <laughs> mRNA technology, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite interesting.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I yeah.
0: don't think anyone well, gets hard also- high by choice. <laughs> 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 well, they do. Sometimes they come to your clinic and say, you know, yeah, dissolve this crap <laughs> yeah. that someone else did, and, yeah. and and you get into that thing. The other interesting thing that I remember what Patrick said, and and this was interesting. So the Highland comes in a 150 unit pre-made yeah. up little vial thing, whereas obviously our Highland Hy, get it right, Highland comes in a 1500 powder that we would then yeah. reconstitute ourselves so he said in the early days when when you know doctors were trying to communicate and talk about this phenomenon of filler dissolving they couldn't understand yeah. each other patrick was like what do you mean you're using 10 vials of this stuff like because yeah. you know that that equals 1500 and you know it's just interesting how you know we sort of had to sort of work our way through this because it was just a different product and
2: yeah and and I think and, and certainly from being part of CMAC, communication is key and standardization of information. So um that's and that's how errors happen if you're not careful about that. Mm. But in terms of the efficacy of this of the enzymes, the formulations are going to be different. They can't be the same. They absolutely cannot be the same. Yeah. You can't have, you know, ovine or bovine hyaluronidase versus human recombinant versus is sort of in natural how you're on days where we've got like six of them. So so the efficacy is going to be different. And we know that the Hylinex has got so a hundred times more enzyme activity per milligram of protein. But you can't just say that means it's a hundred times more efficient because it's it's a it's a function of enzymes are what we call like a V max, it's got a maximum rate it can work at. Mm-hmm. So it's it's can it actually achieve that you know when it when you've injected it so the probably it is more efficacious but by but by how much we just don't know and i think looking back at you know the cmac guideline on occlusion we've said you know like 1500 units and then it's like well if you're in america you're like packing open all these vials and it's like well is that really needed um and i think we just we don't know that and we don't have that comparison so i think for our Amer- American colleagues, I feel like they are not, they're slightly out of the loop with how we've decided to standardize it. Mm. So I think that's something where there needs to be a little bit more work done. And it would be interesting to see what ultrasound shows us. So if you've got a pocket of a certain size of dermal filler, if we're using one formulation versus the other, how is that comparing in terms of rate of breakdown? Is there really a difference? Does concentration, you know, how does concentration impact on that? So that's something I think
0: would be would be useful to do. Hmm. I want to ask David a question. Sure. Why do you think we get hyaluronidase days from lamb's balls? <laughs> <laughs> why is there hyaluronidase days in balls? And
1: uh, I am why do you think I would know the answer to that question? I,
0: I thought you might have thought about this. You wrote a book on skin and aesthetics. You may have come God, across I did not know it came from lamb's balls. Yeah, lamb's ball. Do you know why do yeah. you?
2: Yeah. I don't know, and I don't even know who thought of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's a weird one, right? Well, they can't really complain. I, I hope I mean, I'm not uh, making this up, but w- when the sperm meets the egg, the sperm yes, releases hyaluronidase to get into the egg yeah. inside. Oh, permeability. Yeah. Well, it's, so, a, it's actually so, okay. literally dissolving. Oh, sperm permeability. The, Spermeability. Yeah. There you go. Well,
2: interestingly, <laughs> I think, and I hope, I'm, I hope I'm right in this, but we have, I think it's six hyaluronidases, and one of them is the PH twenty variant, and that's the one that chomps away the HA around the ovum. Right, so let, let yeah. experiment, and that's the one that is um when they've used recombinant technology for Hyalin X. I think that's that's the enzyme that they've, that they've used. Right. So they,
1: if they, if you're saying that taking it from an animal source is not the best option because it's slightly you know we're not, a different creature not different. vegan well i'm saying why don't they take them from humans i mean i know it's probably not probably not a very <laughs>
0: you're a high-lays donor Lesser. i'm sure it's not something that you'd, yeah. you'd want to do but uh, i mean uh, it's hard <laughs> enough getting a covid vaccine and people then getting people to line up <laughs> for their balls imagine, to their <laughs> yeah, yeah. can you imagine that was your job <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living i'm a high donor yeah <laughs> what's
1: that insta- what's that entail no thanks <laughs> well, well you get two for
0: one if you're a sperm and high-lays yeah. donor. You can make it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we've gone we off digress. Topics. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Sorry about that. I want to sort of go into like the logistics of highlays because Mac <laughs> will have their protocol. We have AMET yeah. here, our sort of um, 24-7 sort of emergency service. Uh, there are yeah. other protocols, the Lorenzi and so on. What, yeah. w- just talk the listeners through how you guys in the UK would... Educate someone to make up some hyalase in let's talk about an emergency first, and I don't know if you if it differs for cosmetic dissolving, because I think that's varies so you know, everyone's got their own way of doing it, and even their diluent is different. So some are using saline, some are using preserved saline, some are using lidocaine, some are using water. It's just make it up as you go. Yeah. Sp- no. Yeah. No, who knows? <laughs> yeah.
2: So we the basis of ours is on the DeLorenzi protocol. That's what we were following from the, from the pulse infusion because that mimicked what we were seeing in practice, really, because we have to, I mean, on a, some weeks we might not get an occlusion. There have there has been a week, a couple of years ago around Christmas, where I myself, there was five ongoing. So we oh. do see a volume of these and it's probably, I mean, we also have quite an unregulated, sector in the UK so we see complications a lot of the time um, so we based it on the DLNZ protocol but we, we differed it slightly where I think he was saying an hour between pulses and we were saying first of all you know, when you administer your days you do your massage you do your, your checks of capillary refill time and then you just basically go again
3: mm.
2: now in terms of the, the basis for that it really came down to of all the fact that if we just sat for an hour nothing was really changing and if we weren't getting perfusion and we weren't really seeing a difference you know after an hour you know if it wasn't happening almost instantly then it wasn't really going to happen the other thing is that the tissue kinetics of halironidase is somewhat kind of unknown it's difficult to find information on that so we know that in the plasma the body just gets rid of it within like two to three minutes we know that in cartilage it can last a lot longer but in the subcutaneous tissue, if you look at papers, some papers will say, well, there's one that says like five minutes, another one that says up to thirty minutes. But certainly, we just sort of felt that waiting for that hour wasn't really necessary if your, you know, first attempt really wasn't profusing it. As long as you had given it a firm massage and you properly assessed the area again, if you still felt that that, you know, there was still a still a a, a blockage or some sort of vascular issue there, Hmm. and then the second thing is in terms of in terms of diluent. So we've gone in concentrated with the holiday We have said that fifteen hundred units in one mil And Lee's when Lee was inputting to this, he was quite keen that we used lidocaine,
3: right?
2: Um, Because lidocaine at certain concentrations can cause a vasodilation. So there's that, and also the fact that we were finding that discomfort for the patient was limiting. New, the cycles how many cycles that we could do and patients were just saying right enough i can't this is just too uncomfortable so that's the reason why we sort of said well you could use lidocaine as a diluent and the ph is okay and everything and it's it's sort of um it's compatible in that sense so we the other thing in terms of concentration was that because the how we are on the vehicle the more um diluent you use the 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 quicker the spread is going to be away from the area so we felt by keeping the volume lower and trying to isolate the area well that you know we might have a a, you know a a better hit rate on this so in terms of how we're advising people to do it i mean usually you'll get a distinct area of ischemia so it's a case of um using your capillary refill time doing it properly and assessing the area that you think is affected, but also for example, if it's the upper lip, you're going up the filtrant onto the tip of the nose and you're going back out towards the facial artery. So you're exploring that whole territory and yep. mapping out where the ischemia is and then trying to target that. Um, so that's basically what you know what our what our guideline says, but the fundamental basis of it is on the De Lorenzi protocol. because we felt that, that fitted better what we were seeing in practice
0: hmm yeah I, look, i've certainly been in a situation where i've been trying to help people dissolve or give remote help or, or the two or three occlusions that i've had myself and the the local stings like shit let's just be honest yeah. especially when you're doing a lip mm-hmm. and, yeah. and you do get to a point where the patient says "I oh, just enough well also they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're in pain mm. they're stressed they're, yes. they're, they're, their, their tolerance of pain will be compromised as yeah. well because of all that that's going on too absolutely so uh, you know the the more comfortable you can do it the better i guess but um you know if if there is Mm. a vasodilation property then Mm. makes Mm -hmm. sense and and, you know and Mm -hmm. i do know some people who will sort of do a half half of lidocaine and and saline so i don't know i don't think we we know would it also be letting some of the filler
1: out of the vessel because of the permeability or are we talking about particle sizes that would be too big to to come back through
2: no, well, probably be too I, I would imagine it'd be too big to come back through. We're sort of banking on some permeability with the with the hyaluronidase. Yeah. Um but you know, you've also got the aspect of you could fragment the hyaluronic acid. And we know from there was a quite a high profile case with like Julie Kaplan Bass and she was helping someone. And I, I think I can't remember exactly where. They originated from, but there ended up there was fragments of HA and, and you know around the infra-orbital frame and in different areas. So mm. there had been some sort of spread and some sort of dispersal of it. But we also have to consider that you know just because it if we were to add days to the enzyme, we might think that it's dissolved. But actually, if you put it under a microscope, there's still chunks of it. You yeah. know, so you are breaking it up, but you're not completely turning it into something like water because you're not you're just breaking it up basically
0: yeah and then you've got the issue of micro emboli you know down the line and yes it's a tricky one yeah you, you almost wonder are you going to make things worse particularly if the, the, the closer to the eye you get whereas if it's you know down on the chin uh, you know I would be less concerned
2: yes yeah, so, but of course down the chin you've got the problem of the tongue and everything so, so you've got to think about the extended network and. We we have seen cases where there has been a nose occlusion, and then once that's dissolved, the person has had visual symptoms. So, um, uh-huh. and that's something I really sometimes wonder about: if there's intra-arterial injection, if you're doing that under force, are you pushing something, you yeah. know, upstream? Um, so I think there isn't. There's a lot that we don't know, and the premise of our guidance was to get it concentrated, hit it fast, and basically pulverize it down to to try and contain it if that makes sense so you know that's that is a consideration but um you know at the moment i don't think certainly from the cases that we've seen of occlusions we personally apart from that one situation with the nose none of the occlusions that we've dealt with have then gone on to cause problems with vision
1: yeah you mentioned that, you know, because of the source of the bacteria or the source of the hyalase that um, you do have things like reactions and people having different tolerance levels to it. So there's like lots of, you know, rumors around yeah. that, you know, if you're allergic to bee stings, you're also going to be allergic to to, hy- to hyaluronidase. Yeah. Is, is that sort of true? And then sort of, I mean, I've had hyalase a couple of times and I've noticed that, you know, the first time I was pretty okay with it then the second time i actually developed you know itchiness um yeah. you know becoming a little bit inflamed and irritated the area was a bit sore mm. so it seems like my first instance wasn't as bad as my second one was i mean is, yeah. it, is that sort of normal
2: yeah so i'll talk about the beast being wasp thing situation first then we can talk about the sort of incidence of reaction so um if we look at being wasp things um there are lots of proteins in bee and wasp stings, and haluronides is one of them. Mm-hmm. And I found a paper by a lady called um, Emily Keller, and she's did a lot of work on this. And what she was basically saying that is, if you have had anaphylaxis to a bee or wasp sting, then your incidence of having anaphylaxis to a further bee or wasp sting is sixty percent. Now, if you're thinking, right, well, it could be the haluronides. In that beer was sting, but you don't know for sure. Your maximum risk from giving them hyaluronidase is up to 60%. So you've got an up to 60% risk of anaphylaxis with hyaluronidase. And then there was another part that talked about large localized reactions. So large localized reactions are obviously when you get stung, and it's not just you've got a welt in the area, which people often think is an allergy. You have to always drill down with your patient what do you mean by allergy? What happened when you were stung? a large location reaction would be like the whole arm or part of the trunk or wherever you were stung. And apparently the incidence of anaphylaxis to a further sting is 5%. So again, if you think, well, it could be the days, so then you would think, well, my maximum risk of giving days may result in a 5% risk of anaphylaxis. So I sort of work off of that because that's the only thing that I could find. So, you know, unless people get specific Allergy testing to the haluronidase component, then you're never going to know for sure whether it's the haluronidase in the stink So that's that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, um, I believe that there's two things that are happening with haluronidase. There's either an allergic component to it or there's it's an irritation reaction it's actually nothing to do with allergy. So I think there's two things that are happening. And the reason why I think that is because when It's been used in other indications, like when it's been used to inject around the eye or, and, you know, there's lots of papers on, you know, uh, cases of, well, I see lots of case studies. There's like 60 something. Um, So the incidence of allergy should be the same across all indications. It shouldn't just all of a sudden be really huge in aesthetics. So a lot of people report swelling and irritation. So when I did a questionnaire on this, I surveyed 650 injectors and 52% said that significant swelling and irritation were common for them. So you can't just all of a sudden have an allergy rate that supersedes any other indication. So I think that there's two things that are happening and it's difficult to know which one is happening. I think with you, David, if you're having a worsening um, symptoms on secondary exposure, that's probably more linked to a sensitization. So an allergy, because it's a protein, it's it's slightly foreign to the body. So you know that that, that could happen. But if you actually look back to the sort of the incidence of allergy and other indications, um, it's somewhere between 0.03 and 0.13. So it depends on um, which case report you're looking at but it's low and it's not just type one anaphylaxis. It's not just your type one reactions, it's delayed reactions to your type four. So there's a whole kind of um, a cluster of allergic responses, type one, type four, and the majority of them in the literature have actually been delayed onset reactions, swelling, rashes, that kind of thing, rather than anaphylaxis.
3: Yeah.
2: So, um, so I think we've got some work to do on trying to separate what is an allergy, and what's just an irritation reaction? Because in fact, only last night I saw something on on social media where um, there was really swollen lips, and w- which then meant that the war face was swollen. It it looks like you know that person could be you know developing anaphylaxis, but they were in their car taking a picture, so you know the clinical signs are not you know you know they're they're not showing any other signs that there's systemic involvement, so. You know, I think that um, this swelling, especially when you're using even pharmaceutical grades, um, because it is still different. It's, it's derived from animals. You yeah. know, um, we know that the drug is irritant anyway. We know that it's irritant. So, I think we have to be careful what we label allergy. Mm. Yeah,
0: I, I, just, I had a
1: sorry. I was just, oh, I was just going to say, um, uh, antihistamines would that help taking them sort of prophylactically before you'd have that for well, Actually,
2: funny you should say that. So now, I am. Um, I pay attention to what's in the medical history quite closely. And if somebody's atopic of, of you know of any description, whether it's even hay fever, if I'm going to use hyaluronidase, I will get them to use their, their antihistamines for five days before to just because I think, well, antihistamines are so inoculate, does it, they're so safe. And if I can just do a, a histamine blockade, then that's not gonna hurt, is it? So that's um, that's what I do in practice.
1: Uh, well, I get allergies from time to time. So maybe that's why I
0: develop that sense you
2: should try it try yeah. and see, see if it helps
0: okay that's really good advice sorry Jay. yeah no, i was gonna say I, I treated a girl literally yesterday uh for filler dissolving not my work and she's actually booked in for a lip lift in two weeks here in mm-hmm. sydney and you know she admitted herself Philips were yeah they weren't great and so was my you, you keep me. moving around i'm trying to look at you and uh, give you the eyes uh, andy's gonna be very <laughs> Al,
1: Al, uh, 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 town engineers gonna be very cross with jake sorry
0: everyone um yeah and and exactly like you said you know i said to her because you know we're using a reasonable volume because there was mm. several years of filler in there um and you know you're putting in four or five mils of uh of higher layers in the diluent and of course you're going to look like you've got anaphylaxis and well as you're doing it not just after but as you're doing it the lips is blowing up like a balloon and i said to her you know i know you're you're going to freak out when you look in the mirror it won't be there in an hour or two once that fluid sort of disperses but yeah an inexperienced injector might shit themselves and think yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, they do. This is the yeah. of anaphylaxis. So exactly what you said. If if the diagnosis of allergy is swelling and irritation, well, I've just put a needle in the lips four hundred times, and and they're <laughs> swollen. So with
2: that, a very mm-hmm. elegant drug. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Have you had any
1: patients go actually like how they look with the highlights in them or <sighs> swollen and tears? <Jeez. laughs> no, they. That, tend, could, be the, that no, could be the new thing. No, <laughs> definitely not.
2: I know. Yeah, night out. <laughs> but I think the. I just want to, I don't want to bore people too much about the, but you'd get two types of reactions. You get type A and type B, and, and type A um, are predictable with the pharmacology of the drug, and type B are kind of random. So, allergy would come under that. And separate to allergy, if you're using a concentration of less than 10 mils and 1500, it's irritant, it's going to cause irritation and erythema. And in fact, that is in the data sheet for the drug. Mm. So, so we know that it can cause swelling, we know that it can cause irritation. Um, so I think that's something that we really do need to counsel patients on before we administer it. And also, when I've had episodes of swelling like that, it does go down quite quickly. But but now what's happening is sometimes in the UK, they're going to hospital or they're just been really quick, you know, quickly given steroids and then it's like, well, that's settled the swelling. Yeah, but the, the swelling may have settled on its own. So it's really difficult to get any data on this because, um, like, as you say, you know, if you're an inexperienced practitioner, you your first principles just get lost and you just want to get that patient into A&E because the lips are swelling. So, yeah. and the other thing as well is that the skin tests.
0: I was going to ask you about know, this.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it's... Quite common that people will say, I had this swelling, my skin test was negative. I mean, that's because, you know, first of all, there's these mixed reactions. So some of it might not be allergy. So of course the skin test is not going to show anything. So, you know, if you're relying on a skin test to mean that there's going to be no swelling, then you're really barking up the wrong tree. And then the second thing is, um, We've always called it patch test, but it's an intradermal test. A patch test is something completely different. It's what the hairdresser does when you put it topically on the skin. Yeah. So we don't know what concentration, the amount of units to put in. We don't know exactly how to perform a skin test for that drug. That's what allergy clinics do. So we're just making it up as we go along. And then because there isn't that validated amount to put in, it's how are we going to interpret that? So... Yeah. I think we are sort of playing at being an allergy clinic, but actually we don't know what, how much to put in and really how to interpret it. And also, again, we are trying to assess for, will this cause swelling? And we know that the swelling is sometimes just an irritation reaction and may not even be allergy. So, um, you know, there's a big, for me, these are very limited, these skin tests in practice.
0: So, so you're saying no you don't do them in a word
2: i don't know i don't I, I really do pay attention to the the medical history and if somebody is atopic as i've said i'm sort of hammering them with the antihistamines. Mm. um and then i don't really go i would rather put a, put a small amount in and then just wait to see rather than just go gung-ho and just you know throw it all in and you know a vials's gone in and then I, I just i'm a bit tentative with how you on days. I just sort of, um, I take my time with it.
0: Interesting. So I, g- I guess we'll talk about, in fact, one more question on, on the sort of allergies and stuff, and then I'll ask you another question. What do you recommend people have in their emergency kit or in their room available just on that off chance that there's an anaphylaxis?
2: So I think it really depends. So for us, I can talk. really de- so we go by, we've got national guidance for um, anaphylaxis and we've got guidelines that we've produced from cmac that, Basically says that it really should be just adrenaline, and you shouldn't be cannulating and putting in steroids, etc. And that's just I think because of how we're situated in the UK. Mm-hmm. We are all we're not part of a hospital or an outpatient clinic. Often people are, um you know, in, in a room on Harley Street or something with you know no access to oxygen or an airway, etc. So it's really don't if somebody has true anaphylaxis, it's use your adrenaline and get them in, into hospital. But it depends on what you're clinical background is as well because maybe you do want to have oxygen maybe you do want to have an airway if you do do want to have systemic steroids so it really depends on who you are and what, what your setup is and if you feel you could start to manage that
0: so probably non-medics wouldn't know or have access to them mm-hmm.
2: well i mean yeah i mean they i mean who knows what they use
0: who knows? <laughs> I just thought that because you know, I, I know that's a debate that's raging in the UK, and mm-hmm. yeah, well, it's, it's a very good answer. Well, it's a good reason why you you might want to have some medical background. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I know.
2: I mean, I do personally. I've got all I've oral sedatives. I've got antihistamines. I've got, got ampules of adrenaline, um, and I have multiple just in case because you know. After 15 minutes, you may be readministering. So it depends on how far you are from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the UK, trying to get a, an, an ambulance, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be convinced with the promptness. I don't, I don't
1: understand why it's controversial. I mean, would you let your janitor run your legal case for you?
0: I no, I, I've got no problem. I'm just, you know, I have no idea who's listening, but I know yeah. there are many people, for whatever reason, who think it's completely normal. You know, it's, it's a bit like saying, would you let, Non dentist, take your teeth at all, so, well, yes, clearly yeah. not.
2: You know, why my, my take on this is I mean, the argument is always you know, you don't have to be a medical professional to inject a set of lips, it's, it's a skill, and we can all learn it, etc. And I've done a first aid course, so I'm just as equipped because I've done courses. But to me, especially with working in complications, I'm so hyper you know, to this situation. Firstly, the amount of disasters that we become aware of because of the fact that um, the process of doing the past medical history and the person probably shouldn't have been injected in the first place, the, the process of reconstituting vials, ace- trying to be, you know, adhering to aseptic technique, cleansing the skin appropriately, and doing the treatment, you know, vial sharing and, and different things, the whole governance structure around that. You cannot know that unless you have done a tenure as a, as a medical professional administering medications. Yeah. Then you've got the, the problem of um, assessing things like: do you have an infection? Do you know how to assess for an infection? Do you know what the difference is between cellulitis and an abscess? Can you assess ischemia? Do you know if it's getting worse? Do you know if you've solved the problem? It, it's like it's it's just the whole pathway. I, I just don't understand how that just can't be taught because you're building on the knowledge that you have before you enter aesthetics. Yeah. You already have basic knowledge around infection and basic knowledge around perfusion and, and things. You're just building on it. So when um, in the UK, it's just from the, the non-medical sector, they are vehemently opposed to this idea that they shouldn't be doing it. They really do yeah, feel
0: lots of money that it, they oh. are
2: that they are safe. And And they think, you know, if something happens, the patient can go and just go and see the doctor? Because that's what doctors do. Um, But of course, at that point, you're dealing with, you've got a dermal filler implant, you've got an abscess around that. If it's delayed, you could have some coagulase negative organisms that are not responsive to normal antibiotics. Um, You know, it's just the, the very complex situations can arise from dermal fillers if they're left to just languish.
1: Yeah. And what about being able to assess someone's mental suitability and they don't have some oh, yeah, sort yeah psychiatric disorder or body dysmorphic? I mean
2: And that's another whole can of worms. It's
1: all easy till till something goes wrong.
0: If we do yeah. have a non-medic listening who who you know feels strongly that we're talking crap here, very happy to host Come you on, on. on here. Come on. Yeah. And um, you know, we'll we'll see what you have to say. Yeah, why not? Everyone gets an opportunity. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, I was gonna ask you, Gillian. Um mm-hmm. You know, we've had Steve Harris on. He, he has a very famous <coughs> dissolving clinic, and many of us, you know, uh, you know, just yeah. like yesterday, we, we sort of encounter patients who want dissolving. It's almost like, mm. you know, it's just a thing now. It's become a almost a a normalisation of, you know, oh, if I don't like it, I'll just go and get some involved yeah. and it's all sorted. But well, what are the implications of dissolving? I mean, I know that there was a bit of a debate on Instagram. Can't remember when, maybe six yeah. months ago, where. Um, a high-profile plastic surgeon in the States. I won't mention his name because we're trying to get him on the podcast. Yeah,
2: you should come on. You should come and talk about
0: it. I guess it's nothing to hide behind. Dr. Ben Talley. Um, Just almost a a comment that I read and and it sort of made me think and then I know that you had a sort of a bit of a debate with him online, which was really good, but it was about Mm. what does hyaluronidase actually dissolve? Is it just Mm. the filler? Is it you know the endogenous ha uh, many of uh, we got lots of uh, questions about this so i can't really shout anyone out specific but you know lots of people are asking that and um again do we know or are we just shooting in the wind
2: so i think um yeah where to start with this there's a lot there's a lot to unpack as we say um i think if we just look at the you know how days is? It's everywhere. It turns over within like twenty four hours. So the body, the fibroblasts are just churning it out all the time. And obviously, when we are, it does dissolve our native HA. But you know, from practice, and I mean, I've certainly never seen any problems with it in my practice. So the how you know the how you're only acid should just replace within twenty four hours. And um, I think he specifically was talking about the smas. Now, um obviously. Surgeons, you know, being a surgeon, he's looking at the SMAS and he's sort of saying certain things will make look different, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I can't understand exactly what the substrate would be in the SMAS. I don't understand what exactly it would be targeting. And one of the questions that I asked was, What what well then what is the target? Why why do you feel it's the SMAS is deflating? Um because if the hyaluronidase has not been replaced, I then don't understand why there wouldn't be other systemic symptoms yeah. you know because clearly there would be a metabolic issue with the patient so i can't understand why then there wouldn't be a symptom of a problem with haland's production because why are they not replacing it yeah so that was something that i sort of you know don't don't quite understand there um and i think that we have to be aware that um this is a new a, a relatively new indication for use and there is more than one variable when you're dissolving dermal filler when we have used it for um, you know, spreading of fluid subdermally, when we've used it for extravasation injury, there has never been this adverse event profile where it has damaged connective tissue yeah. or subcutaneous fat. So why is it only being referred to in facial aesthetics? So that's the first thing, because adverse events, if you're using it by the same route, the same and the, the, the doses are similar we're not using any doses that are completely different so why is the adverse event happening in aesthetics what is the difference what makes us unique that people are reporting this problem so we have to consider the fact that as I said there's more than one variable so if you're you know injecting filler and you're having volumetric changes in the tissue you're affecting lymphatics you're irritating vessels which can also contribute to edema you're having changes in the tissue and you're adding volume there. So if somebody's got 6.8 mils you know across their midface or you know they've got um, fill in the periorbital region, when you start to dissolve that from a patient's perspective they're going to look different. Yeah they're going to be used to the volume with the whole perception drift concept there's going to be physical volume that's taken away so they're going to look different and they may not like that change. So we also have to consider that you know if we are overstretching tissue, you know this concept of overfilling. But if we're overstretching tissue and doing things, we know that hyaluronic acid itself has got impacts on cellular signalling, and if you stretch the fibroblasts, you know you can get collagen deposition. Things can happen, so you're probably creating tissue changes as well with the hyaluronic acid if you're overfilling as as well. So I think it's very simplistic to say. You know, if we are seeing changes and, and I would like to see them do histological studies and I would like to see them actually look into this because, you know, I think to say this is happening, but to not back it up with research is a concept that I'm completely not familiar with. Because mm. to me, the research goes before we state on the record that this is this is a problem. So I'd like to see them do that so that we can understand if there's a problem and what is causing it, because I think it's very simplistic to say. This is just the enzyme. Because come on, there's more than that going on. We're you know we're removing filler as well. So I think that that's my sort of scope on that. And then I also want to just um acknowledge that there are specifically in aesthetics, um, a cluster of people who feel that there have been effects from their haluronidase. Now there will be a real mixed bag within that, and the, there may be people who perhaps there's a psychological element to it perhaps not um there's people that are saying that they're having systemic symptoms from it people that are saying they're having dry eye now i know that paluronidase can only spread as far as diluent will take it if you Mm. inject it in one ml it can only spread small distance so physically it can't get to the the eye so um there's things that people report that just don't make any sense to me in terms of the pharmacology and i think that. we have to be a little bit sensitive to people who are experiencing these problems. And if somebody goes on the record and says how you're deflates the smarts and it does this, it, it sort of legitimizes everything mm. when at the moment we don't really have a scientific basis. So me as an injector, you know, um, you could be in a situation where someone's saying to me, you're gaslighting me because you're not telling me, you, you didn't tell me that it could deflate and it could do X, Y, and Z. I go by what's on the drug data sheet and I go by the the documented adverse event profile. I can't just go and say, well, so-and-so says, therefore I'm going to put that on my consent form. So I think it's putting other people in an unfair light, actually. Um, And and I would urge, you know, if if people really feel, if these surgeons really feel that something's happening, then they have to research this and let's produce some science around it.
1: So when you asked, there was no evidence that was forthcoming.
2: No, I mean the thing is, I think you know that when they were first talking about it, there was this sort of method, sort of this is a smas deflation, etc., and this is the enzyme. I think now the narrative has changed slightly, where it's perhaps they're saying now both it's both the, the effectively the filler volume and removing the filler volume as well. So the the, the discussion around it is changing, but you know nobody's been able to tell me exactly how it's doing it um you know what exactly would be the target because i always think back to first principles well what is it worth what how is it affecting this how is it happening um and i don't i I still haven't really been given a um a sort of an argument to to help me understand why that 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 Mm. might be happening
0: Mm -hmm. yeah interesting um i guess it's more of an injecting question than a science question but you know dissolving clinics or you know offering mm. routine elective dissolving what, what are your thoughts yeah. on that as an injector you know you're yourself
2: so i don't know i think i'm probably quite lazy i like to have my um patients that come to me every three to four months and we embark on a plan together and we inject bits as we go along so i don't do a massive amount of elective dissolving in my practice and when somebody comes to me with a problem i always would like to give the initial injector the respect of resolving the issue because often people haven't gone back to the original injector and I don't know why they seem to still view this as a beauty treatment in the UK because mm. we've had we have obviously because of the sector. So something saying, "Well, have you considered going back?" Oh, I didn't want to bother them, and you were just handy. <laughs> so. You know what my my sort of immediate thing was: we'll go back to them, have a, have a discussion with them, and, and you know let them know and, and let them sort of dissolve. I think if the injector's gone out of area or not working anymore, then and and there's a lot of migration or problems. And I will do it, but it's not something that I really want to do as a as a service. Because the other thing is, you know, I think if you're just dissolving a set of lips or something, then that's pretty straightforward enough. But if you've got people that have gone to multiple injectors and they may have a lot of filler volume, and if you're embarking on removing filler volume and you scratch the surface, you don't really know what you're going to be left with. Because as I've said, a lot of people don't like sometimes some of the symptoms of edema and problems, but they like less looking flat with, you know, effectively their, their tear troughs on show. So I think it's just something that I personally um, would sort of, shy away from. But I think, you know, with Dr. Harris, I mean, the thing is sometimes who else is going to do it? You know? Well,
0: this is what it comes down to. Someone's going to do it.
2: And in the yeah. UK, there's, you know, pockets of the country where it's it's just fashionable to have chins and lips and, you know, these like HD cheeks. So um everyone just wants to look like their friends. So, you know, and then fashions change and then then they're left with these fillers that can last, you know, as Mobin showed, like up to twelve years. Yeah. So somebody's got to take it out. Yeah. So if if, if Dr. Harris wants to do it, then obviously um, and he's actually, you know, just just thought that it would more power, t- you know, to him. Um, yeah. and he's obviously quite happy doing it. Yeah, I'm mm.
0: uh, definitely not knocking Dr. Harris, I think he's doing mm. a great job. But I don't know, exactly what you said. It's an awkward situation where patients, they bounce around. Um, From my perspective, they don't go back because they've lost trust in that injector and it's not normally, you know, a trend that's gone. It's crappy tear troughs that look awful Mm -hmm. or or lip lumps or whatever it may be. I was going to ask a question
1: to you and to Gillian was, do you think that for a lot of injectors, that having this this tool that allows them to reverse a bad outcome. Do you think that in some ways, that they're injecting with impunity, or not with the right care, or not planning it, or not being afraid to go too far because the thought process is, "Well, I've got, I've got this little tool here that'll get me out of trouble." And do you think we're overusing high-lays from just not skillful injecting or, or not taking as much care?
0: I'll let you take that first, Gillian.
2: So, I think from my perspective, me, I'm i'm always wary of every drug in fact i'm even wary of par- paracetamol paracetamol can kill you right so it's um, any drug i try to be cautious with because body doesn't like drugs in fact so i think that you know i mean in my practice i don't think that i do that because i'm so aware of i just i don't want to have to create my own work really so i'm cautious with it but i think people are some people are like that some people say it's okay if you don't like it we'll just dissolve it out and i think that's just the wrong message because it makes you lazy Mm. it doesn't you're not considering the patient properly the long-term plan and i just don't think you should be relying on a drug because as we've said it's irritant potential for allergy and um I, i think that we could be in a situation where we're sensitizing a lot of patients i really feel when i hear that people have had seven eight rounds of dissolving my heart just sinks because you know whilst we've spoken about you know, can Halle-Londias affect SMAS and things, although at the moment I really don't, I I can't see how, I just don't think we should be overusing any medicine, that would be my view.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, I mean, I've definitely met patients who've had multiple dissolves at multiple injectors and you sort of think, well, what is the problem? Like, why is it not right? Why why is it always being dissolved? Like, what 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 happened in those consultations that led yeah. to multiple dissolves? So, yeah, I think you're right. And you know, I don't tell people that it's just for an emergency, but I certainly don't encourage them that. Oh, if you don't like it, we'll just take it out. I definitely don't say that. Mm. But um yeah, I don't know.
1: Actually, good good. Uh- question for the guys from fresh clinics here in Australia they're um, a group of doctors that um, assist uh, nurses with with scripts here in Australia and they
3: mm.
1: they've obviously collecting a lot of interesting data so it could be an interesting discussion at some point about you know what are the trends mm. they're seeing with high lays and you know is it on, is it on the rise not just in terms of there's more injectors yeah but just in terms of is it being more frequently used for things it probably shouldn't be
0: yeah definitely mm. um, going back mm. to cosmetic oh, sorry um, elective dissolving do you change mm. your concentration you know let's say I, I know everything's different but it's like a superficial sort of lump say in a tear trough do, do you make it more dilute rather than concentrated or the other way around
2: well for lumps no so for, if i've got distinct lumps with nodules mm-hmm. um, then i will it's still concentrated it's still the 1500 units in one mil dilution and the reason being is that we well we through cmac often find that with these nodules. Um, people are coming back for a second to dissolve because the problem's not completely solved. Mm. So it's about trying to mobilise that nodule and trying to get the needle inside the nodule and using quite a you know a concentrated dilution um, and really massaging that down. Um, I, I think if if it was a set of lips or something, elective dissolve, I don't think I'd be using one mil. I, I use somewhere between two and three, depending on how much filler is there, because I want a bit of spread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think nodules, I am very keen that it's a um, reconstitution but when you're trying to dissolve a a more diffuse area of filler then you can go a bit more concentrated and get allow that for that spread
0: thank god i'm doing the same as Gillian. i feel good now (laughs) (laughs) it just makes sense doesn't it virtual
2: high five -five.
0: um you you mentioned cmac you're seeing you know uh, occlusions and, and and other things like what what sort of volumes are you talking about and and how many members do you have to sort of give some idea of how common this is
2: so i'm um, so i mean with cmac at the moment i think we've only got about between 600 and seven, maybe more than that roughly about 700 members now mm-hmm. but it's kind of growing steadily and we've actually just gone into south africa and de- going into denmark wow um, and we're in talks with canada as well that's really um, cool so so it's it's kind of it's expanding it's it's a slow it's a slow growth because we're deemed Although we're very cheap for a premium service, it's it's kind of funny. Um, So, at the moment, if I look at what's on the books at the moment, there are three abscesses um, this week, and last week we had quite a significant occlusion. So we can be juggling on a weekly basis. One occlusion. There's delayed onset nodules seem or or reactions or or whatever delayed onset kind of phenomenon seem to be more frequent at the moment than mm. occlusions and I don't know whether that's just that people are now more comfortable with dealing with these vascular events now because there's a lot a lot of stuff around on it, a lot more teaching around it and I think now the I actually, delayed onset stuff I actually find quite stressful because it's a marathon not spent with these things. With occlusions you're done and dusted mm. or, or at least you're done and dusted in about three or four days. With these delayed onset reactions you are you know, it can, they can evolve and they can then pop up in other places, and it's just—it's um, so. So that's the kind of numbers that we're seeing at, at the moment.
0: Okay, go on. Seems busy. Yeah, or busy-ish. How, yeah,
1: I mean, I'm assuming it's getting busier all the time.
2: Yeah, well, obviously, as a member grows, members grow yeah. it gets busier, and also as people become more comfortable contacting us. Yeah, because so there's it's always, yeah, there's always yeah because there's always a feeling that there's fault I, I don't know people get you know it must be something i've done and what have i not done and mm. and you know with the abscesses that we have for example you cannot sterilize the skin you cannot sterilize it there's always bacteria deeper down the dermis and somebody who i was chatting to about jake um tom de you know mm. when you look at his paper on biofilm he used um polymerase chain reaction to identify the bacteria and, and you know he find that there is bacteria on on the filler whether or not it's symptomatic or not so yeah. you're not you're not working completely sterile so you're going to be a statistic at some point something's going to happen so i wish people would just unburden themselves of the, this fault game so i think people are you know with cmac i think especially as you see other people putting things on the forum or we're feeding back about cases and we are also um being honest about our you know limitations and things i think people are you know more willing to to share and, and to seek help
0: yeah what are your thoughts about the you know the the trend of targeting occlusions with ultrasound and i'm not asking you about how to ultrasound but you know the the, the theory behind you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but but you know do you think that that's the way things are going i guess is what i'm saying because the the problem with you know the the lorenzi protocol and david's managed occlusions is in his clinics and i've had a few and when you don't have a visual um imaging you're, you're just flapping um, around in the wind you're yeah. you're, you're guessing you're Hoping. doing multiple <laughs> yeah. stabs you go from cannula to needle and you, you try and get all complicated mm. to target things better but in reality you're just guessing um Exa- yeah Mm-hmm. But but then we've sort of said oh, hyalase is permeable, but then it doesn't seem to be permeable when we want it to, but it does when we want local anesthetic to spread. It's just weird. I don't understand it.
2: Yeah, obviously, you know, the tissue wall. You know, not everything can get through the tissue wall. It's it's, it's you know it's it's a vital structure. So obviously, you're not going to have. You know, we we know we don't have free passage, but I think with ultrasound. I've done some ultrasound training with the Amsterdam team who came over to London and um, I just think people should remove the misconception that they're just going to do a course and all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden they will be identifying occlusions and there it is. Let me just. It's not like a tear trough not- course
0: or a lip course. It's a skill. It's, yeah, it's, it's, not- it's, it's a way of seeing something and using your hands yeah. and it's, it's, a, it's difficult. Yeah.
2: And so I think, you know, some, some basic vascular mapping. And sort of identifying in high risk areas where the vessels are and perhaps augmenting your treatment plan. I think that's quite, that's easily achievable. But when you see, for example, Leona Shelka from Cutaneous, we've had her on FaceTime and she's been on FaceTime with one of my colleagues and we were trying to manage the occlusion through flooding. And he has a really good ultrasound machine. Yeah. And he had the ultrasound out and he'd done some courses and couldn't see it. And she picks up like the most minute bit of filler. And you also have to remember that, you know, there's the vessels are convoluted and you don't know whether it's the same vessel or a different vessel or whether it's a blockage or, or what you're seeing. So that really takes a trained eye. And if you're not seeing volumes of occlusions, I don't know how you're going to get that skill. So, my feeling, and what I what I do now in in, in the UK and when I'm advising for you when know, when people have occlusions is if we are, so we're, we maybe catch it within the 24 hours and we're doing how you know you know we're dissolving and then it's sometimes not always clear whether you've resolved. It's so you're reviewing it the next day and you know that if you get to day three it's not resolved you're going to get some pustules. Yeah. So I use day day three as my pivot point, and then if I feel like at that point you know we're we're not winning the battle. Then I think that's the place that we're going to be sourcing ultrasound centres, and I think there's only going to be a cluster of ultrasound centres because there's there's only a handful of people I think well that I know of in the world that probably could accurately and quickly identify and resolve that occlusion. I mean, only can do it within like minutes, but you know if you speak to Stella, uh, to Satnikova, who's over in Seattle, you know when she, she will have be, she'll be quick, quicker now. But at the start, you're still scanning all the areas and it's taking you longer to identify. There is that process of learning. So I think there probably will be, we're moving towards designated centres where people are building on that skill and seeing volumes. But if you're just a normal injector and just your bog standard clinic and you're seeing like maybe one occlusion every two or three years, you're just not going to be able to manage that quickly, in, in my opinion.
0: I agree. Totally Mm -hmm. agree. Although I did, I got involved with one just last week and I'm just about to post after this podcast. So check out my post. We had Mm -hmm. a successful one on the ultrasound. So that was good. But you know, my colleague has an ultrasound in his clinic and, and he, you know, he understood what he was doing with the ultrasound. I wouldn't know how to use a machine, but together we were able to deploy the HyLase and actually we saw a visual result like immediately. So I I had proof that it, does work but you know understanding the skills uh, yeah i think it's gonna take years yeah. mm-hmm. and you've got you really to be really passionate about it
2: yeah you have to be committed absolutely you have to be able to carve out time in your clinic to practice you yeah. and you have to do further training hands-on online you have to be liaising with people who know more than you um so i think that if you want to be good at it there's a definite commitment and a definite cost attached as well
0: yeah yeah, God. the scanners aren't cheap. Courses aren't mm-hmm. cheap. I'm actually going to the one um, in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leone's doing that one in June. So we can feed back and maybe do one with Leone yeah. and, and talk about my experience of learning and, and how bloody difficult she it was. She would
2: be great. She, she's, um, what she does with ultrasound is phenomenal. Um, there's things, and I was chatting to you, Jake, before, you know, she was, she can, a lot of vessels become dilated when fillers round them. They don't mm. like it. They get upset. And she sees a lot of things. And when you do training with her, you know, it's funny, I was sort of reflecting on it and my learning. You know, what I'd learned in the past seven years, it like it almost doubled when I when I spent time with her. There was just stuff about complications I just didn't know. Yeah, and um, that is worth its weight in gold. Hundred
0: mm-hmm. percent. Now we've got some listener questions. <laughs> listener questions. Oh, first one, Jacinta King. <laughs> yeah, she, she seems to get a question every <laughs> yeah. week now. Thanks, Jacinta.
1: <laughs> so she's asking about um, how long after you've made up highlights can it can it last? You know, you sort of hear people saying a day, twelve hours, maybe a couple of days. I think the PI says twelve hours. Um, there's notable people here in Australia, um, such as dr stephen Liu, who suggested that maybe you can divide it up into sort of smaller needles and, and freeze it and then sort of thaw it out and use it again do you have any any thoughts or experiences on that yeah,
2: she's, she's probably going to be upset with my answer so i'm i always just go by the book with medicine, such a pharmacist it's an yeah, you're gonna get a pharmacist <laughs> know, answer now <laughs> i know exactly but it's an enzyme it's a biological enzyme um so i don't think my insurance would be too happy if i was using it kind of off license but your point about freezing it When you freeze an enzyme or a protein, you have to lyophilize it. There's a two-step process. You have to take the water out before you freeze it. So, if you're reconstituting it and freezing it, I have never, I I don't. That's certainly not in keeping with any freeze drying of enzymes I've I've ever seen. So, I would would ask where that evidence comes from because that, to me, would denature the enzyme.
0: Yeah, um, I have to say, I I was there in the room when I heard that fact, and I was scratching my head, going, doesn't that kill the enzyme or destroy the enzyme? But I don't know. I've actually heard someone also say that they freeze um, reconstituted toxin. I was like, seems pretty weird and definitely off the PI. (laughs) Do their Uh, patients have
1: three eyes now? (laughs) You
0: know, and, and I'm not being funny. Why would you ever need to do that? You know, is your clinic that just that slow that you're needing to freeze Botox until like next year until you get your next patient? Yeah. I also think
2: you would also have to make the patient aware because that's going outside product license. Yes, so you're you're now doing a completely you're deviating from product license. So you would have to make the patient aware. It's off off label.
3: Yeah,
1: it's a double off yes. label. There's no label. There's no bottle. It's it's on a napkin somewhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, question from Caitlin King, who we had on for our first injection yes. Diaries. Thanks, Caitlin. Um, sorry on the weekend Um, what is your strategy Gillian to dissolve those annoying little filler pockets on the sort of inside wet dry border of the lip Uh, they're tricky
2: is she talking about the kind of very tight hard nodules
1: Uh, or, 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 or,
0: or often what I well my interpretation when I've seen it on patients is that they've been injected elsewhere with that tenting technique going sort of down to the wet dry border and doing a column and if you're not careful when you do your first injection close to the wet dry border you just mm. see an immediate bubble because you're in the wrong layer uh yeah. I, i've seen that a lot actually
2: so i don't know whether she means the kind of like very um fluid type ones or the kind of tight nodules so obviously with just a fluid type one with no encapsulation i would just again just use my normal technique of dissolving and making sure that i'm I would basically just dissolve the entire. I would just want to get rid of all the filler, basically. Yeah. But you do get, you do get situations where you get very tight, rock hard nodules and lips, and mm. they're really, really difficult to to dissolve. And and it's you can't. There's no point in getting ultrasound out because they're so small that you're not, and it's difficult to. It would be difficult to do. Yeah. So it's just repeated um, immobilization and injection and using a really small needle to try and get in, really firm massage. And sometimes if I feel it's linked to some kind of um, delayed onset reaction, I might recommend some steroids beforehand. Mm. Try and soften the um, the wall around it, which sometimes can help. Yep. Um, but they are very, very difficult to get out, these really firm, tight nodules in the lip.
0: Just to add um, to that, it's not that common. i I wonder sometimes whether they're sort of intradermal rather than mm. you know subcutaneous yeah. or, or in the mucosa or whatever so you know another uh, technique you can try if you're listening is just literally get like a twenty seven gauge needle make a little hole and just squeeze it out like a like a yeah. zit. you can often get a nice little you know, a bit of Warm. filler that comes out. Yeah, exactly like a worm and you're it like, okay, hit gold huh. and and it will just flatten out. Dr. Pimple Popper. Dr. Pimple Popper, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm going to take the mantle. <laughs> a lot of
2: YouTube channels.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, just to shout out some other listeners because, yes. you know, again, I questions. think we covered a lot of their questions even though we didn't ask you specifically. So we had Maurizio Saron. Uh, Maurizio was one of our competition yes. winners. Yes, he the, the ran the Julie Horn Prize. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, he was asking about I think you call it the ramifications of dissolving. I think we've done that to death, so we, we won't yeah, go back into yeah. that. Um, we also had a question from Anjana Bana. Um, she was asking about the patch testing. So thank you for your questions, guys. I don't. Oh, there was another yeah, question. Uh, yeah, yeah, this was about um, bee stings, etc. That was Paula McLeister. I think she's an NP yeah. up in um, Queensland. Yeah, hopefully no floods there. Yeah, so hope mm. hope you're well Paula and and everyone else who's listening. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um Gillian it's been fantastic to talk Thank to you. you. Um always Pleasure. great to meet new experts. So are you going to go to IMCAS in Paris? Can I can I, I buy you a drink to say I'm thanks going. for coming on?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, yeah, oh, a scott. scott
0: whether sh- whether they want to drink,
1: <laughs> that's a dangerous know, question.
2: Sazerac
1: I'm half Sazerac, Scottish. Sazerac, I, n- I know. Be... I know. I, n- I know. there are no stereotypes on this podcast. <laughs> no,
2: the reason. No, the reason why it's um, blurred out is
0: because there's whiskey in the background. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> sh-
3: drinking
0: on the job. Nice. Fair enough. You join us. We have a nice little drink. Um, we will put all of your details at the bottom of the podcast description, so everyone can connect, follow, uh, boost your Instagram numbers, etc. And yeah, I I thought that was fantastic. It was great. I think there's definitely follow-up podcasts. Definitely delayed onset nodules. That's you know just something that just seems to be uh, you know, and it's not filler specific or brand specific. I'm telling you now, and I know Gillian. You know more than me that it's not brand specific. Aberrations that pop up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah. Um, But anyway, we'll catch up over a whiskey in Paris. Thank you. Nice
2: to meet you all. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon.